This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. All right, welcome everyone. I would like to welcome you to the seventh annual Ida B. Wells Lecture on behalf of Africana Studies here at Villanova University. My name is Brian Crable from the Department of Communication. I'm an Africana Studies affiliated faculty, and I'm very pleased to be um, here introducing our speaker for today, Professor Patrice Rankin, who has just recently, and I understand this is the first public announcement of this, um, been named the Dean of Arts and Humanities at Hope College in Michigan. So um, very pleased for Professor Rankin. But um, until uh, the end of this academic year, he will continue his present position, which is Professor of Classics at Purdue University, my alma mater. Um, Professor Rankin arrived the year that I departed with my PhD. Ships passing in the night, here we come together. Uh, he has been at Purdue since 1998, the year he received his doctorate from Yale University. He is the author of two books, Ulysses in Black, Ralph Ellison, Classicism in African American Literature, published in 2006, and in 2007 was named um, Outstanding, uh, by choice, an outstanding academic book. Um, his forthcoming book, Aristotle and Black Drama, a Theater of Disobedience um, will soon be appearing from Baylor University Press. Um, Professor Rankin, uh, I met him last year at a, a conference on Ralph Ellison, and we immediately hit it off. The Purdue connection, of course, like, you know, right there. Um, but what I discovered was sort of a lot of areas of overlap, and not just Ralph Ellison, but also interest in um, classical mythology, philosophy, and language, um, things of that nature. And so I said, Professor Lucky, you know, who would be really great for a lecture next year would be, uh, would be my friend Patrice. Um, he, he does work in classical reception as well as classics um, and the relationship between the classics and African-American literature and African-American studies. Um, and as part of that, um, that work, he's been sort of increasingly moving into a consideration of performance um, and the relationship between performance, um, theatrical texts, and African-American literature. And so I'm very pleased to be introducing, on behalf of Villanova University and Africana Studies, Professor Patrice Rankin, whose lecture today will be Black Venuses, the Body and the Text. Please welcome. If you will allow me a moment just to sort of, oh, there we are. Okay, uh, make sure that that's not locking up and it doesn't need my password or anything. Thank you, Dr. Lucky, uh, for your work in getting me here and all the coordination that you've done. I've had a nice stay at the hotel. It's been relaxing. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Crable, for picking me up from the, uh, I was going to say airport, but it was actually the train station. Um, and in a way, I see this as an opportunity to pick his brain. Uh, just at dinner alone, I think I got five new book references, some of which I knew about and neglected to read, and others, the majority of them, I didn't know about. So I think he probably only got one from me, if, if even. So I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, have you, well, to pick your brain, because this is really more uh, Brian's area than, than mine. Uh, Brian mentioned my previous work, and I kind of, since no one here really knows me, uh, I wanted to just kind of frame what I'm going to do today around a broader, longer consideration of what my overarching scholarly interest has become over time. I didn't know it was going to be this. Uh, in a way, my interest has been that of the place of African Americans in what I like to call modernity. Uh, that is, the way that we construct the world around us, the role of race in that, uh, and its relationship to antiquity, which is always part of uh, this issue of modernity. 
I met Dr. Crable last year, as he mentioned, at uh, a conference on Ellison's work, Ralph Ellison's work. And my first book was, of course, on Ralph Ellison's work. I became really interested in reading Ralph Ellison on the way that he used mythology, the way that he crafted uh, individual identities out of a sense of, of ritual and a sense of the past, the sense of the ways that we sort of enact certain dramas within real life. Um, I came to realize that he was a student of the classics to some extent. Not only did he have Latin in high school in Oklahoma, but he also came to, to really enjoy reading uh, what was then the Cambridge School of Mythology, later Kenneth Burke and, and other uh, such authors. So I became really interested in the relationship between Ralph Ellison and the classics. And that's really blurry, but that's the first book, uh, Ulysses in Black, Ralph Ellison, Classicism in African American Literature. How many people have read Invisible Man who are here today? Okay, so since most people haven't, I'll just briefly uh, say that what's interesting in terms of connections for today is the way that the novel, which is a kind of Bildungsroman, a uh, kind of development of a young African-American protagonist. The work is published in 1952, so that's around, it's, it's sort of contemporary with 52. It's not a realistic novel, but it, it does imagine this young man journeying through America around that time. So a segregated America, uh, he's moving from the south to the north. He's been kicked out of college, a college that looks a lot like the historical Tuskegee Institute. And uh, he imagines a certain freedom that's going to come once he's in New York City. He realizes that uh, as he journeys uh, to New York, things aren't what they seem and that this freedom is fleeting. There are some problems living in New York in 52 for an African-American man as well. Uh, I want us to kind of begin to think about, as we sort of move through the lecture today, the way that this journey in Invisible Man is parallel to the slave's journey from south to north. Uh, both the uh, uh, quest for freedom for many runaway slaves from south to north, but also the way that the slave narrative imagines the journey of the protagonist. Uh, and I say protagonist because in many cases the slave narrative more and more becomes fictionalized by the middle of the 1800s, but this journey from south to north. So uh, today I'll come back to this idea of this journey and this period of slavery, 19th century America, with my three main, what I'm calling the goddesses, right? Um, these are Sarjay Bartman, uh, the Venus Hottentot. She came to be called Venus, disparagingly somewhat, uh, uh, up to her death in 1815. Harriet Jacobs, as a kind of example of uh, the way that I want to begin to think about the slave narrative. And then, of course, Ida B. Wells, since she is our namesake for this lecture. She is our eponymous hero, so to speak. We might add to this Susan Laurie Parks, because she's the author of the play that I'll discuss a little bit. Uh, Susan Laurie Parks, the author of Venus. So this is a kind of way to pivot to this second book. And, and much of what I'll be talking about today has to do with material in this second book. And in this book, uh, I was really interested uh, in, in theater. I was going to theater a lot. I uh, was very interested in, in the plays of August Wilson, as most people, many people are, and began to want to think about uh, how to talk about these plays and how to talk about the role of race in these plays. And I came to realize that my training in literature wasn't enough, that literary discourse, literary analysis uh, was not going to be enough for me to understand what was going on in these plays. Performance theory became, for me, a way to understand and to talk about what was going on on the stage uh, uh, as I was attending these plays. What I want to offer you today is not so much a thesis or hypothesis, unfortunately, 
but rather some speculation. And this is where perhaps Brian and, and I don't know if uh, the theater folks are going to be able to, the performance folks are going to be able to stay to talk to me, but maybe you'll email me some ideas. But this is more speculative than it is um, theory. Hopefully it won't just be random rambling. I want to speculate that performance theory, that is bringing back the body into our reading of the texts, might help us to reimagine the past in provocative ways. Understanding performance as a social and theatrical phenomenon helped me through this second book. I wonder how it can inform how we read the 19th century and early 20th century texts, such as the slave narratives or the lynching pamphlets, we should call them, of Ida B. Wells. My, my, my uh, definition of performance theory uh, of performance is going to be very sort of parochial, uh, and uh, you will forgive me those in the room who have more sophisticated understandings of performance theory, but for me, what I was interested in was Victor Turner, who gives us the anthropological argument that drama is intrinsic to culture, not primarily as an institution that is at some point created. In Turner's formulation here on the quote, Social life then, and I should say, as I'm being picked up on the mic, m some of the material I'm doing here is uh, from this second book. So if people are picking me up online and saying that I'm plagiarizing my own work, I'm just going to put it out there that for the sake of talking about, Ulysses, about uh, uh, Aristotle and black drama, I'm self-citing. I'm giving you uh, uh, passages from the book. So the quote, social life then, even its apparent quietest moments, is characteristically poignant with social dramas. It is as though each of us has a peace face and a war face, that we are programmed for cooperation, but prepared for conflict. The primordial and perennial agonistic mode is the social drama. Turner's language is really striking to me. Rather than something that we watch on stage, as I was doing in these theaters, drama is intrinsic to culture. Social life is drama, a stylized conflict, or agon, the Greek word for conflict, in which we wear different masks, our peace face and our war face. Turner cites performance theorist and practitioner Richard Schechner as his intellectual counterpart in conceiving of the relationship between performance, the roles we play in everyday life, and theater. Schechner's environmental theater movement took root in the 1960s and culminated in his dismantling of Euripides' Bacchae in his Dionysus in 69. I want to call your attention to some of the axioms of Schechner's environmental theater movement. And if you're interested in this, he's published this in the volume called Environmental Theater. I'm not going to read them all, but just as an example, number two reads, all the space is used for the performance. All the space is used for the performance. I actually show Brian De Palma's filmed version of Dionysus in 69 in a class I teach on uh, the classics on screen. It's called The Tragic Vision. And um, one of the things that the, the Palma does is to do a split screen so that uh, at any given point you're watching the audience and you're also watching the actors on stage. That is to say, the actors on stage are not really actors, they're part of the audience. And the audience is actually part of the action. They become actors in the drama. So here again, Schechner is interested in the breaking down between the theatrical role and our everyday lives. What's going on on stage is parallel to what's going on in everyday life. What's going on in everyday life is parallel to what's going on on stage. For Schechner, and here's a quote, the essential theatrical themes 
do not find their own or even chief sources in literature, but in the experience of the body. We might add Judith Butler to this to think about the role of gender and sex even as a performative uh, 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 social uh, drama. And then the iterability that repeating these performances and these roles really is how we become what we are to be. Let's add race to the mix as if this wasn't enough. For Aristotle and black drama, I wanted to treat our relationship to texts, the texts we read, in terms of performance. So I borrowed a theoretical definition of the black body. The black body has a particular inflection in performance theory as it does more broadly in modern life. Black bodies signify certain things to different people. I'm not going to say that there's one black body, there's one idea of the black body, but the range is there and it would be way too much for me to explore that range here today. I think of Kamani Gray who was killed about a month ago in New York City during a stop and search. Black male, what does the black body signify to a New York City police officer? Going as far as to suggest Plato's metaphysical forms, Harvey Young defines the black body as an idea in the mind of the viewer. Not my very body that stands before you today, but rather, quote, a second body, an abstracted and imagined figure that shadows or doubles my real body, the real body. That the shadow overwhelms the actual figure, that your conception of my body engulfs who I might actually be, is true not only if you self-identify as white. People who define themselves as black also have a set of ideas about the black body that threatens to, throw, to drown out actual people and their voices. Thus, the black body is a broad canvas upon which we inscribe modernity. Franz Fanon again, right? Look, a Negro. So in Aristotle and Black, body, and, and, uh, the, and black Drama, I title the relationship between classical text and the body a theater of civil disobedience, a theater of civil disobedience. Of course, here I'm citing or thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. and his idea of nonviolent resistance to unjust laws during the civil rights movement. This to me was an instantiation of a certain relationship between texts and the body. We know King cited Socrates, Thoreau, Gandhi, and so on as forerunners to the resistance to unjust laws, themselves texts, texts and this resistance through the body. In civil disobedience, bodies move into unlawful public spaces, places where they quote unquote didn't belong. Black bodies occupy segregated lunch counters. When we read such documents as King's letter from a Birmingham jail closely, we come to understand that King conceived of dis civil disobedience as a theatrical, performative, and dramatic act. In the text, King of course argues that when man-made laws don't square with the moral laws of God, Legal segregation, uh, sorry, citizens must act, right? When the laws don't square with moral law, citizens must act. Legal segregation is the case in point, and King has already tried, he says, negotiation. That is the platonic mode. He has tried negotiation. Because of the blasted hopes, he says, of the promise of integration, the lingering realities of political and social inequality, King and his fellow citizens prepare for direct action. 
This dramatic action requires physical motion, quote, whereby we present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and national community, unquote. Through bodies, some marked as black, and now moving through space in uncustomary, formerly unnatural ways, blocking streets, sitting in lunch counters, and on buses where they, by law, do not belong, King and the protesters dramatize, he says, the issue of segregation and immoral laws, texts, that can no longer be ignored. He goes on to say that history is the long and tragic story, tragic story, of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily, end of his quote. Through their bodies, these black and white heroes of the civil rights movement alter the drama of American history. For King, civil disobedience is an idea and a dramatic act that socially and politically conscious citizens perform. At its most eloquent, civil disobedience is an artistic performative art form. King uses the language of theater, bodies, drama, tragedy. He goes as far as to call civil disobedience the deus ex machina, right? divine intervention. And he says that this is what will restore America. In other words, he uses terms very similar to those of Turner and Schechner. So in the book, I argue that King's actions instantiate a, lo instantiate a long American sort of jazz-like improvisation on text. And I don't have time today to give you all of the examples, but this play on performance is uh, uh, paralleled in the book. I explore this more, more broadly to what philosopher Alan Locke, for example, does with Aristotle's poetics. He never cites Aristotle's poetics directly in the way that we would, in class, ask you to cite. If you did this, you'd be kicked out of class, right? You'd be sent to the dean of students' office. Uh, but he says uh, in uh, a 1986 essay, uh, sorry, a 1926 essay that um, uh, America is calling for a serious drama that deploys the Negro as a natural-born actor. And here he's actually riffing on Aristotle's poetics, where Aristotle says poetry in general can be seen to own to owe its existence to two causes, and they're rooted in nature. First, man's natural propensity for childhood, uh, from childhood onwards, to engage in mimetic activity. August Wilson does the same thing. He never or tries not to cite Aristotle directly, but in one particular interview from the 80s, uh, he kept referring to characters in his play as spectacle characters, spectacle characters, right? And the interviewer at some point stops him, because this is a phrase, it seems so everyday, so common, and yet, it seemed to signify something. And the uh, interviewer asked him, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by spectacle character? And then he finally comes out and says, my spectacle characters are fully integrated in the other characters' lives, but they are a spectacle for the audience. I think that's my interpretation of spectacle in Aristotle's poetics. Right? This is from a playwright who, in the, after Fences wins uh, all these awards, Pulitzer and otherwise, says to the interviewer, I've never read anything but Shakespeare. I, I've only read, uh, uh, the only play of Shakespeare I've read is Othello, he says. And he says, the only other play that I really have ever seen is Ethel Fugard's um, Sizwe Banzi is Dead, which is a play about apartheid in South Africa. So here's a guy who's insisting on being a kind of idiot savant, right? He's insisting that he doesn't know the classics and he doesn't know um, um, the literature. And yet here he is uh, citing Aristotle's poetics. Just a couple of examples of what I, I do in the book. But let me come around to the Venuses, right? Um, 
Susan Larry Parks' Venus is one of the plays I discuss in the book. So this gives us an opportunity to come around to the Venuses for today. Parks was born in 1963 in Fort Knox, Kentucky. She graduated from Mount Holyoke College, taking her BA in both German and English in 1985. How many people have seen Girl 6? No Girl 6? This is happening with my students too. It gets to a point where there was a time when we had a common body of films and literature that we all, was, have you seen 42? Anyone go see 42 this weekend? What are we all watching? What was the last movie you saw? What was the last movie you saw? Too much, too much time in class, right? All right, so if you go see Girl 6, Spike Lee, if you, maybe there's a Spike Lee class, right, where you can watch all the films of Spike Lee. If not, it would be a great class, right? Um, but, yeah, <laughs> but Susan Laurie Parks wrote the screenplay for Girl 6. She also wrote a screenplay for the film version of Their Eyes Were Watching God. So she gains her early career is uh, in uh, writing screenplays, and then she ends up writing over a dozen plays. Um, I don't know if you know about the uh, 2011 adaptation of Porgy and Bess, uh, which Susan Laurie Parks was involved in. Um, it was so controversial uh, because they altered the script that Susan um, um, Sunheim actually wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times protesting um, the play. So Parks won a MacArthur or a Genius Award in 2001 and a Pulitzer in 2002 for the play Top Dog, Underdog. You do know Most Deaf. Most Deaf was an actor in the play. It was, I think, his Broadway debut. I, uh, you might not know Jeremy, Jeremy Wright, but Jeremy Wright was also a character in her Top Dog, Underdog. Um, so Venus, coming to the play, uh, won an Obie in 1996. The prolific playwright, uh, some of you might know, Richard Foreman, uh, with over two dozen, three dozen actually plays to his name and nine operas, directed the premiere of Parks' Venus. Parks took some issue with the first production and did her own in 1998 at the Wilma Theater right here in Philadelphia. So this was a popular play, so much so that uh, it's shown, it's done quite a bit. I saw, the version I saw was in 2010 in Chicago at the Steppenwolf Theater. So in Venus, Parks imagines the experiences of Sarge Bartman, one of the Venus Hottentots. She's a Khalsa woman who was paraded throughout Europe, throughout England and France particularly, from the 1790s until her death in 1815. There are a number of books on her, a number of articles written. Um, uh, Rachel Holmes, uh, historian, uh, has written the sort of main biography or the main tab historical account of Sanjay uh, uh, Bartman. Parks takes the historical record in which Bartman is primarily silent and struggles to give her some agency, some language. We know how degrading the treatment of, Sartman, of uh, Sanjay Bartman was. Uh, in fact, upon her death, her genitals were cut out and displayed in the Museum of Man in Paris. Uh, history tells us that it, the, they were repatriated Range, repatriated to uh, South Africa uh, recently in the 1980s. What does it mean to stage this woman? It's worth noting that Harvey Young, whom I mentioned earlier, wonders whether the theater space itself doesn't inevitably lead to a certain kind of gaze upon the body. In Parks's hands, Bartman is a subject with her own power and voice. 
She accomplishes this, uh, Parks does, through performance and theater, arguing that the text or the word and the body are inextricable. In the play, Parks juxtaposes speech with the black body so that through language she challenges the Hottentot as spectacle. She was a person, not an anti-classical Venus. And of course, the reference to Venus is comparing her to this classical form, the Velas de Milo, uh, and the proportionality of this form, but then also, of course, of erotic desire, because in the accounts, um, constant theme of the erotic attraction to her uh, among the doctors and others. So uh, we have in the play Bartman, we have the European audiences uh, for whom she was a traveling att attraction, and the doctor, George Covier, who toted her around the continent and was her lover. This is Parks' conception of this, right? Um, we might say he was viol her violent assailant, right? Uh, but in Parks' play, uh, he functions as a lover, someone to whom, uh, with whom uh, Venus herself, hot, uh, um, Sanjay Bartman herself, has an erotic attraction. Part of the problem with the uh, uh, first staging of the play, Foreman's adaptation, was that uh, he took so much, um, he was so connected to the doctor, he so identified with the doctor and developed that character so much uh, that the role of of uh, Sarge Bartman was kind of diminished. So Parks takes the play over. She takes it back. So in her play, this invocation of the goddess, of, of, of the Greek goddess, is a form similar to laws, a form that constricts the body. This is the way we're supposed to see her. This is the way she actually is, right? So there's a constriction on this. This form governs the body's movements and even, get, even determines how others are to see it. She's an anti-classical Venus, an example of the disproportionality of the non-European or the non-classical body, and yet nonetheless erotic. By having Bartman vocalize a selfhood, Parks opposes this framework to her understanding of Sajay Bartman. It's kind of tough to talk about a play without anyone having seen it. So let's just take a look at um, a clip, maybe just a minute or two. This is the opening scene of Venus. Another minute. 
Okay. Okay, so clearly trying to infuse this with a bit of humor. Uh, the repetition of the Venus Hottentot is dead is quite a way to begin a play, right? If she's dead, why watch the play? Um, so all these different, I've sort of just noted a couple of things there for you to think about as I read. But this play evidences a disjunction between external form or the rules and regulations or the gaze upon the body and language, not only in the inflected speech of characters, but even in Parks's very conception of theater. For example, rather than absent the play of a classical chorus, you just saw, of course, Aristotle claims that the classical chorus is an indel indelible feature of, uh, of drama, but Parks intensifies her chorus and in doing so calls a kind of self-conscious attention to it. In her roles, rather than cast of characters, Parks lists the chorus as over and over again and she proceeds to enumerate five different roles for this chorus. They are the eight human wonders. You might have missed those lines because it's sort of, but it, they are called in that clip the eight human wonders. They're also the spectators. They're the court that judges Bartman's humanness. They are the eight anatomists who will examine her body. And they are the players in a play within a play, which is called in the play For the Love of Venus. The play begins, as the play begins, and we just saw, the chorus of spectators mirrors the audience in their desire to see a show. And early in the play, they actually guide our attention and our gaze. The gals got bottoms like hot air balloons, bottoms and bottoms and bottoms piling up like, like two mountains, magnificent and endless, and asked to write home about, well worth the admission price. The chorus of spectatorship shifts as they themselves are the spectacle. We are watching them. They are the eight human wonders. But they watch Venus's body from their own vantage points. Along with a list of scenes that number to 31 and that move backward, because she's dead in the first scene, so we've got to get there, Parks's chorus is evidence of a framework for drama that the playwright will simultaneously exploit and confound. And this is again what I mean by a theater of civil disobedience. Rather than reject classical forms, Parks works through them as a way of forging new meaning out of them. Within this structure of a standard Greek play, but whose chorus is variable with scenes shifting and with a play within a play, Park's characters express themselves in a language the inflection, appearance, and repetition of which challenges the reader. Park speaks of her approach to language in terms of an architecture. This is her word. In the quote that I just read, the, T-H-U-H, as opposed to the, as the definite arg article presents the actor with a feature that he or she cannot ignore, as does the pile-in, noji, pile-in up of bodies. These features are not necessarily markers for black speech. Rather, Parks represents a number of dialects. As she sees it, diction is colorful and worth paying attention to. Quote, this is Parks. Quote, sometimes people say, okay, 
Sometimes people say, okay, and it's fun to write. So I was just trying to get more specific because if someone says, I'm going with you, okay, that's different from I'm going with you, okay? It's different. It's a different thing going on, end of quote, elsewhere. Look at the difference between the, T-H-E, and the, T-H-U-H. U-H requires the, art, the uh, actor to employ a different physical, emotional, and vocal attack. As simple as Parks' observations about language might seem, they are the centerpiece of her civiler, civilly disobedient use of the body. The last quote from Parks on the screen encapsulates the link between the text and the body that I'm trying to draw out here. She says, language is a physical act. Language is a physical act, something that involves your whole bod. Write with your whole bod. Read with your whole bod. Wake up. It's a great example from one of the last scenes of uh, the play where Sarge says to the doctor, let's have love. That have is replacing make. They're about to have sex. Let's make love. What does it mean to have love? Let's have some love. Did she have love in her life? We, she made love. Did she have love? So, Parks' treatment of Bartman leads me to the broader question of agency for blacks within the historical context of the 19th century. And this leads me to really the beginnings of a project that I am uh, beginning to kind of un unravel, unwrap, uh, um, and this is slavery in the book. Here again, the body and the text are in play, and here again, I wonder, and this is where I'm going to hopefully pick some brains, what performance theory has to offer me in this discussion. Now, scholarship of late has done a kind of retake on the slave narrative. And I was just in DC and uh, met with Adrian Cannon, who is a librarian at uh, the Library of Congress. And she said to me, well, you know, the slave narrative, it's an oral work. Most of the slaves dictated their narratives to uh, some, uh, um, um, someone who was interested in emancipation, uh, someone uh, to, uh, to a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, no, no. Um, people, gosh, the, the word is escaping my mind. Um, it's going to be abolitionist. Thank you. Right. <laughs> she just dictated. She just said that you know, they dictated to abolitionists, uh, 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 and and uh, the abolitionists would write this down, and then they would, that would be the slave narrative. We're finding out in scholarship that in fact. Uh, there are two ways in which the slave narrative is actually uh, being constructed. In the first place, slaves are writing their own narratives in many cases. And in the case of Harriet Jacobs, I want to show you momentarily, uh, I'm seeing uh, not just a kind of citation of oral influence, but some literary illusion and literary citation as well, on the one hand. On the other hand, we know that the slave narrative very much influenced writers during the Victorian period, early 1800s. We know that. Um, uh, we now know that um, Charles Dickens was very much interested in Frederick Douglass. And it, it's likely that Frederick, that Frederick Douglass's narratives and the narrative of uh, the slave uh, 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 finding his way to freedom, the runaway slave, uh, is the framework for great expectations. Um, so just some citation. The first book, for example, is, um, is a book that, that, does the, that does this, has this argument about um, Charles Dickens' great expectations. So we're reconceiving of the slave narrative, and 
some quotes here from uh, Jacobs has led me to think of her work in a different way. Uh, certainly, as I said, many of these quotes are from oral sources. We know that uh, the poor worm uh, shall prove her contest vain is from uh, George Crabbe's 1826 quotations. Uh, it later comes up in an 1880 work on elocution, so perhaps these are oral. Uh, come up to my parlor, said the spider to the fly, folkloric reference to which uh, 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 Jacobs refers. She is here uh, talking about the master's attempt to get her to come back uh, to, to uh, her home after she has run away to the north. She's in New York. So yeah, these might very well be oral. There are also citations of, of biblical uh, reference. The last one, for example, she's talking about Jacob and Rachel. But what strikes me are places where Jacob seems to be writing more uh, erudite uh, uh, formulations uh, than have, have, has been uh, afforded to slave authors. And uh, some classes, I was talking to Professor Lucky earlier about some work that classicists are doing. Um, there is a book now by uh, Cook, James uh, Tatum, and uh, uh, Cook is the last name of the second author. I can't remember the first name right now. Uh, but th this is called African American Writers and Classical Tradition. And they've proven, for example, that Phyllis Wheatley, who was also conceived of as a kind of um, idiot savant, right? someone who is not writing from erudition, someone who's not revising her work, they have found several uh, uh, versions of given poems that show that she was actually revising and working through uh, her poems, right? So this old way of looking at these narratives and uh, uh, slave authors in the late 1700s and early 1800s simply won't work anymore. So what about the role of performance in this? I'm wondering about the body in this. How have we formally imagined the slave body? Just as we imagine the slave narrative in a literary or oral terms, we conceive of the body in terms of sickness and distress. A recent review of a stage performance of Afra Ben's 1688 novel, Orunoko, about the namesake slaves capture and torture is insightful on this issue. And I just want to cite this uh, uh, review. This was a, a piece that was uh, performed in Montreal not two weeks ago. And the re review says the following, the image, images of slavery have been so repeated as to become ironic. We are dangerously accustomed to them. I'm not sure that seeing again a half-naked black man being bound and beaten can offer anything new, which is not the same thing as saying that we don't need reminding of the evils of oppression. We absolutely do. But the repetition of some imagery, such imagery, becomes quickly fraught for me and borderline fetishistic. I completely agree with Caitlin Murphy, the reviewer here, wholeheartedly. How we traditionally imagine the black body in the context of the 19th century has been somewhat rightly to an extent in terms of slavery, confined, enchained, scarred with limited mobility. This is true not only in the American context. I was talking to Professor Crable last night about uh, a conference I'm holding at Purdue in the fall where Kelly Redhaven, a colleague of mine, will be speaking. And she's interested in the iconography of slaves in the Greek context, in ancient Greece. And even in ancient Greece, the slave body is smaller than that of the master, is less proportionate, less fit, and on and on. So we're taught to imagine the slave body in certain ways, or we're accustomed to, right? So what I'm proposing here is that reimagining the black body as a discursive tool within the 19th century might 
help us to break traditions regarding how we read history, how we conceive of such discrete literary genres as the slave narrative. And Harvey Young, I keep citing him, but he's already done a good deal of conceptual work for us in his book, Embodying Black Experience. For him, the 1850s Zeely daguerreotypes of slaves taken for research at Harvard represent a kinetic art of stillness. And this is from, this one here is the Zeely daguerreotype. Um, the doctor who wanted these images from the South at Harvard was actually what Harvey Young calls the literary, the sort of um, um, inheritor of Covier's practices. And Covier was, of course, the doctor in the case of Sarge Bartman. So he's interested in studying craniology, he's interested in studying proportions, and he's interested in the body. But what Young is interested here is the idea that there is an art here of stillness. All photo photographic technology can freeze time, but the pictures addressed here differ from others in the subjects, according to Young, performance of stillness, an enactment of a rest that resonates with their daily and lived ex embodied experience. Young ties this stillness to that of bodies in slave holes in the foregoing centuries. Quote, their bodies are not the products of the Middle Passage. They embody the Middle Passage, end of quote. And as you might remember the cover of his book, he's got Jack Johnson there, right? And he's interested in the way boxers, in fact, have to practice stillness. We think of the boxer in terms of bobbing and weaving and in terms of movement. But what about the practice of stillness? Not just Ali against the ropes, but knowing when to stay, stop, when to move. Um, so he's interested in the kinetic art of stillness. While it would be difficult to build a literary theory around the body as a theoretical tool for the 19th century, performance begins to move in just that direction. The stillness of the slaves in the daguerreotypes, that of Jack Johnson and the civil rights protesters that King says have been asked to keep waiting, stillness, a stillness they have performed for too long, this is just the state of arrest that Harriet Jacobs discusses in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Jacobs reminds her reader of the kinetic control necessary to be holed up in a cellar for seven years. And you might not need to zoom in, but there you have. I hardly, she says, expect that the reader will credit me when I affirm that I lived in that little dismal hole, almost deprived of light and air, and with no space to move my limbs for nearly seven years. But it is a fact, and to me a sad one even now, for my body still suffers from the effects of that long imprisonment to say nothing of my soul. Indeed, Jacobs deftly enjoins her reader to imagine a black body other than that racked with the stereotypical pain of the whip. What did Jacobs do in her stillness? What did she think? What did she read? And does Jacob then write with her whole body, since language is a physical act? So I want to close today by coming around to our eponymous goddess, Ida B. Wells Barnett. I wonder if the liaison she creates between the text and the body might help us toward a more philosophical treatment of the aesthetics of the black body, a more elevated approach to our shared suffering. Wells was born in 1862, let me get you to her, in Holly Springs, Mississippi. But the, so she's born in a slave. She's born in 1862, but right around the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed 
eventually her parents, who were slaves. They end up dying uh, uh, while she was very young. Her main writings are later. They're from the end of the uh, 19th century, right? And they're concerned with lynching throughout the United States in the years that followed slavery, but I'm including her. <laughs> and I'm, I've got the right to do so because she was born into slavery. So she's writing particularly during, well, after Reconstruction and after the withdrawal of federal troops from the South. Her pamphlets, Southern Horrors, Lynch, Laws, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, this book was published in 1892, and then The Red Record, also from the mid-1890s. I'm interested in her relationship to presses. Uh, her husband, uh, Ferdinand Barnett, was a publisher. And I mention this only to underscore her connection to publishing houses and printers uh, and, and how she helps to shape the image of blacks at the turn of the century, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. One thing that's striking to me about these pamphlets is the remarkable number of presses that she cites, right? Um, presses from all over the country. The proliferation of publishing houses during the period and Wells' Wells's deft deployment of them. So these include huge presses that we know of today, still the Chicago Tribune, New York Times, but there are also many smaller presses. In fact, the first press she worked with um, is a great instance of what happens at the moment of segregation because uh, she begins publishing in 1892 these um, uh, 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 accounts of lynching and in Mississippi and it immediately becomes a touchstone. It immediately becomes this problem She's actually chased out of town. The press is closed. And suddenly now that voice is, is, is silenced. Right? So she has to find a way. In fact, she goes to England. And they give her a warm reception. They listen to what she has to say about lynching uh, as it's developing in the United States. And she comes back and, and now has an avenue. Um, and, and later on, she meets uh, uh, Barnett, who is, who is himself a publisher. So the first thing I'm interested, as I just mentioned, is, is in, uh, interested in the press. The second thing that strikes me about the pamphlets, obviously, given the subject matter, right, is the role of the body in them, the detail and perspective with, with which Wells describes lynching. So, for example, in the Red Record, Wells describes the lynching on February 1st, 1893, in Paris, Texas, of Henry Smith, a black man who killed a four-year-old girl named Myrtle Vance. Wells makes the point that Smith was not well. He was mentally incompetent, but under the lynch law, every, mov every movement of the black body was subject to violence, whether that movement be consensual, sexual relationship between a black man and a white woman, a petty crime or perceived wrong, or the act of someone who was mentally unwell, such as that of Smith. Wells goes into great descriptive detail of how the lynch mob tracks Smith from state to state, finding him in Hope, Arkansas, returning him to Paris, where he was dragged from jail at high noon before 10,000 citizens. And I'm going to read you this description. You can read thousands of, hundreds of them, right? Um, you're going to hear things that are, and really, this is a harmless one. Uh, this is not as bad as some of them, where we begin to talk about the dismemberment of uh, the lynched body uh, after the lynching, where uh, members in the audience are taking away souvenirs. And Harvey Young actually has a wonderful article from 2005 on the black body as souvenir uh, coming out of these lynchings. But listen to this description. Smith was placed upon a scaffold, six fierce feet, 
six feet square and 10 feet high, securely bound within the view of all beholders. And so he's taken out of jail, set up for lynching. Here the victim was tortured for 15 minutes by red hot iron brands thrust against his quivering body. Commencing at the feet, the brands were placed against him inch by inch until they were thrust against his face. Then, being apparently dead, kerosene was poured upon him, cottonseed hulls placed beneath him and set on fire. In less time than it takes to relate it, the tortured man was wafted beyond the grave to another fire, hotter and more terrible than the one just experienced." End of quote. Honestly, this is nothing compared to some of the um, descriptions. Very mild. And this is just one of many examples of the journalistic detail with which Wells describes lynchings during this period of the Red Rule. Wells wants to recreate the event in the reader's mind, repeating the violence done to the body on the page, using rules of journalism and sociology that she, to some extent, invents. She's not given as much credit as uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, for example. Uh, she's one of the forerunners in uh, the scholarly discipline of sociology. Her precision raises the event to an eloquent aesthetic art that I'm wondering about in terms of the relationship between performance and aesthetics, mimesis, and the text. So I've been all over the place today, right? Uh, we looked at an 1815 uh, historical figure who becomes a character on stage. We've looked at a slave narrative from the middle of the 1800s. And now we look at lynch narratives at the end of the 1800s. The thing that ties it all together is the black body and the question of the relationship between the body and the text. Here I'm arguing that Wells raises this lynching to a level of a kind of aesthetic art. Why is she repeating this? Why is she giving us these descriptions? Aristotle offers us something about why such descriptiveness might have a payoff for the reader. And here is Aristotle's poetics. Objects which in themselves we view with pain, we delight to contemplate when reproduced with minute fidelity, such as the forms of the most ignoble animals and of dead bodies. The cause of this, again, is that to learn gives the liveliest pleasure, not only to philosophers, but to men in general, whose capacity, however, of learning is more limited. Thus, the reason why men enjoy seeing a likeness is that in contemplating it, they find themselves learning or inferring and saying, ah, that is he. For if you happen not to see the original, the pleasure will be due not to the imitation as such, but to the ex execution, the coloring, or some such other cause. Wells appeals to the reader in terms of a well-established aesthetic claim in Western philosophy that repetition, that the mimesis of the event can be as shocking, as evocative of certain emotions as the event itself. She's looking at records in newspapers that are written from the perspective of uh, the audiences to show that these men who were lynched for the most part were criminals, were, uh, had done some crime, and she recuperates these uh, narratives of the black body. One of, just closing up, I just want to sort of link Aristotle's idea to Hume. 
so that we can raise this to a uh, level of philosophical discussion. Hume says, it seems an, unaccustomed ple uh, an unaccountable pleasure when the spectator of a well-written tragedy receives from sorrow, terror, anxiety, and other passions that are in themselves disagreeable and uneasy. The more they are touched and affected, the more they are delighted with the spectacle. What is it then, which in this case raises a pleasure from the bosom of uneasiness, so to speak, a pleasure which still retains in all the, feature, uh, sorry, all the features an outward sympathy of distress and sorrow. I answer, this extraordinary event proceeds from the very, that very eloquence with which the melancholy scene is represented. Ida B. Wells' writings amount to a mimesis of lynching, not just the historical or journalistic record. Her mobilization of presses to accomplish her aim was an act of sheer brilliance one that astutely demonstrates the relationship between the text and the body, an example of the way that performance theory might bring something to our understanding of past events. I'll leave it there. Um, no, no formal conclusion to what I'm saying here, but I, uh, again, sort of leave it open-ended because I'm not sure where to go with this. I'm not sure what's next in this. Um, but I do wonder where, for me, performance theory is going to end and where some other tools might be helpful as I try to reconstruct and rethink the relationship between uh, slavery uh, uh, and the book uh, for this third project. So I'll leave it at that. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.